Welcome, everybody, finally, to uh, this week's Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talk. Um, we're excited to have this talk as part of the Environmental History Week uh, 2021, uh, which is happening all over the world as people organize events um, about environmental history. And so what we decided to do as part of that, since this book talk has involved books from many different um, fields or subfields of environmental humanities, was to invite some of our previous speakers um, who are environmental historians to come and talk to us again, um, but as a conversation um, together instead of one author at a time. So I thought I'd just quickly introduce um, them all to you. Um, and then we'll start that conversation. Um, so we have um, Benjamin Cohen, who is associate professor at Lafayette College. His book is Pure Adulteration, Cheating in, on Nature in the Age of Manufactured Food with the University of Chicago Press 2019. Um, then I have next to me on the other side, Peter Anker, who's professor at New York University Gallatin. Um, his book is Power of the Periphery, How Norway Became an Environmental Pioneer for the World um, with Cambridge University Press 2020. Um, then I have on the second row, Rocio uh, Gomez, who's assistant professor at Virginia Commonwealth University. Her book is Silver Veins, Dusty Lungs. Yes, mm -hmm. uh, Mining Water and Public Health in Zacatecas. 1835 to 1946 with University of Nebraska Press 2020. Then I have Bathsheba DeMuth, who's assistant professor at Brown University. Her book, Floating Coast, An Environmental History of the Bering Strait with W.W. W. Norton, 2019. And Angela Cassidy, who's lecturer at University of Exeter, her book, Vermin, Victims and Disease, British Debates Over Bovine Tuberculosis and Badgers with Palgrave, 2019. And finally, at the bottom, at least on my screen, uh, Etienne Benson, who's Associate Professor at the University of Pennsylvania with his book, Surroundings, A History of Environments and Environmentalisms with the University of Chicago Press in 2020. What I think so impressive about that list was we only had one press that had two um, of the books. Um, I think there's a lot of great work that's being done at a bunch of different places and we have so many outlets uh, to show that off. So I'm excited about it. Yep. So the prompt that we had then for basically opening statements from the, the speakers or the panelists um, is a fairly simple one. So we're going to start off uh, with that. Uh, we'd ask you to reflect on how your book is placed within the larger framework of the environmental humanities. So after you wrote this book as a historian, um, do you think the book has something to contribute to the larger field of environmental humanities, um, the particular scholars who are not historians? And if so, what is that? Um, so I think we'll do it then in the, reverse order of how we presented it. So we can start with Etienne. Okay, should I launch into it? <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, so this is my book, um, Surroundings, A History of Environments and Environmentalisms, which came out last year with the University of Chicago Press. 
And I suppose I should say something about the, my motivation for writing the book, which was my own kind of curiosity and maybe sometimes my own trouble with the very different meanings and connotations that people give uh, to the word environment. And so I approached that in this book uh, from a historical perspective, um, even though that's a question, of course, that you could also approach from a philosophical or literary perspective. Um, so I asked, you know, what, um, you know, what have people meant when they started explicitly talking about environments or environmental forces or processes? Um, and so I tried to answer that question in a way that took into account the specific times and places, uh, the material instruments that people used uh, to, to understand the environments around them. And I focused on a very kind of small handful of, of episodes um, in the history of explicitly environmental thought, starting in the late 18th century um, with Parisian naturalists and then working my way kind of up over the 19th and 20th centuries um, through a few different cases, uh, mostly focused on, the, on Europe and the United States. Um, and then in the kind of last chapter, talking about how uh, the concept of the global environment has been developed within climate discourse um, in the past uh, few decades. So, you know, as to the, the question that, that we were given for this, um, for this uh, panel, which is what we think our, our books can contribute to or how we situate them in relation to the environmental humanities more broadly. Um, I think there's, for me, there's kind of three things uh, that connect my book to that broader conversation. And one, the first one is that I think there, there are clearly benefits to leaving terms like environment very, very loosely defined. I think there are strategic uh, benefits to, to doing that in many cases, but I also think there are really rewards to examining closely what we mean and what others mean and have in the past meant when they talk about things like environments or environmental processes. Um, and so it's, in some ways, I think the book is, I, I hope is just a call to, to pay close attention to what we mean and what others have meant. Um, the second thing is, is that I think when, you know, what I found out when I looked closely at the history of how people have used this term and, and, and how they've put it into practice um, is that there have been very, even though there are kind of common threads that link all the uses of environment, and, you know, environmental language over the past, you know, couple of centuries together, there's also some pretty profound differences. And those differences manifest sometimes in the ways that people talk, but also in the ways that people act, right? So when people actually go out into the world and try to measure the environment, Right, depending on the tools and, and social relations uh, that, that are exist at, at the time, they may come up with very, very different answers. And so, you know, my my I kind of the place where I ended up, you know, with that book is the idea that there are really, there's really a, a, an incredible diversity of ways that people have conceptualized the environment over time. And I think for hum, environmental humanities scholars, that's I think I think that's something important to keep in mind. Um, and then the third and final thing would be that. You know, when I think about one of what the environmental humanities can do as this kind of complex and itself somewhat loosely defined interdisciplinary field, uh, I think one of the main things it can do is actually provide a kind of arena and maybe a set of, of tools and, and translation devices that allow people with radically different understandings of what the environment is um, to come into conversation. And even though the, you know, the, the range of episodes covered in my book, I think is a tiny, tiny proportion of the the kinds of um, diverse ways in which environment as a concept has been, you know, discursively articulated and materialized over time. I hope it provides a kind of example of how to bring those really radically different kind of conceptions into contact. Um, yeah, so I think we have such a short amount of time. I think I'll stop there. I think that's probably already my three minutes um, and I look forward to what everybody else has to say.
Thanks, Etienne. We'll just go straight on to uh, Angela. <clears throat> okay, thank you. Um, oh, it's quite a difficult thing to respond to uh, in some ways, um, partly because thinking about, so when I wrote this, I wrote this partly as a historian, but partly also as a sociologist of science and blending those two. Um, so where my book comes from is, is a place that is partly his, historical research and partly not. Um, but in terms of kind of why I wrote the book in the first place, kind of um, coming off of Etienne's comment, I mean, for me, I started researching this controversy from the present and then just kept going back and back and back. Um, and so it turned into a history because I couldn't answer my question of, of what on earth is going on with this controversy without going back into the history. And once I started doing that, I realized that stories about the past of this controversy were recirculating in the present. And so therefore I needed to write a book about it in order to kind of capture all those different um, threads of argument and how they've circulated and recirculated over time. Um, so I've just lost my camera for some reason. There it is. Um, <clears throat> I'm back. Uh, so, so kind of quite fundamentally, there's this question of, for a lot of uh, contemporary historians, but I think historians in general, is uh, the question of, well, how did we get into this mess? And in terms of, of my work, it's looking at a very specific, very, very messy mess. But I think that also applies to many, many, and possibly all environmental issues in some ways. We need to understand why we're in the mess we're in. And we can't get that answer without looking at the past and using uh, the tools of historical analysis to, to answer that question. So that's kind of my, always my go-to on kind of why um, I wrote this book. Um, I think there's, there's um, other issues that are more specific to thinking about um, environment and environmental humanities. So firstly, it's to do with that many environmental problems are slow and they involve time kind of by their very nature. And so related to the mess question, um, connecting up kind of the past how we get to the present, the role of memory, um, and not just in kind of the stereotype of not wanting to repeat the mistakes of the past, but in terms of want, if we want to imagine new futures that are genuinely new, then we need to know what happened before. Thirdly, I think there's, there's also, uh, in terms of my work around um, controversies, the intersection between health and care, and conservation and non-humans, that care for the non-human world is kind of multiple um, in much the same way, like the environment or environmental things, lots of different things. People care about non-humans in the non-human world in lots and lots of different ways. And understanding those different forms of care and how sometimes they conflict, but other times they intersect. And particularly it's when they intersect and people find shared versions of care, that's when things change. 
And so that I think is the other value kind of in, in hopefully in the work I've done for, for non-historians uh, who were concerned about environmental issues or working on environmental humanities. And at that point, I'm gonna stop and pass on. Thank you. We move on then to Bathsheba. Sure, thank you, um, Finarni and, and Dolly for this invitation. Um, I, I feel somewhat out of place being asked on this panel because I wrote my book really completely in isolation from the discipline of the environmental humanities. I was not a piece of that conversation. Um, I'm trained as a very uh, kind of old school historian in the sense that I, I was trained as a Soviet specialist um, and a US specialist in kind of a, a nation state mode, not in the kind of interdisciplinary one that I've ended up working in. Um, so it's really only in the last couple of years that I've started to think about the environmental humanities and the ways in which um, I'm writing with or uh, for that field broadly considered. And in the particular case of my book, which um, examines the, the two sides of the Bering Strait over the past uh, two centuries or so, what is now Russia and what is now Alaska, um, it, really in order to, to think about the ways in which kind of high modernist projects, be they in the Soviet style socialist mode or the American style capitalist mode, come to inhabit environments that are challenging for the kind of underlying uh, presuppositions of both ideological and social systems. So if you imagine that the world is supposed to have a lot of industry and be based on agriculture, um, the Chukchi and the Seward peninsulas, um, where I spend most of the time in this book, are pretty difficult places to do both of those things. Um, they're not difficult places to live rich, full lives. Um, but if you are imagining a particular kind of um, ecological space in order to conduct a particular kind of economy, they are pretty challenging. Um, and in the course of writing the book, it very much became a story about energy, um, but one that is not focused on fossil fuels. Um, and I think that's probably the first place that I have found people working in the environmental humanities finding this particular kind of history useful is that it thinks about energy as being really important, but energy that is not focused entirely on um, the, the kind of very well studied and very important fossil fuel sources that get a lot of attention. Sorry, that's my dog, one second. <laughs> I promise that that was not actually a planned segue into the second thing that I'm going to talk about, although it makes a lot of sense. Um, the other place where I have um, had a, quite a few conversations with people in other environmental humanities fields um, is in the ways in which historians can put real empirical data behind a kind of commonly invoked thing for the environmental humanities, which is to find forms of agency in nature. Um, and it was something that I was able to find all over in the sources for this book, um, as I don't think is particularly surprising for many historians. Um, but I think also allows us to get beyond kind of a, a pat uh, invocation of agency and actually look at particular instances, how they change over time, understand them as being historical rather than kind of species driven 
um, and actually open up places where historians can work both more in the, the humanistic side of things and more in the natural sciences because it's a set of questions that's actually really compelling to people kind of throughout the academy. And finally, a thing that I think is valuable about history quite generally for people in a variety of fields is that it's, it is a very empirical discipline in the sense that we, um, we just don't get to make things up, right? You need to go find evidence in some form, be it in an archive or an oral history or um, some other kind of source. Um, that's the thing that we marshal as historians. Um, of course, there is some interpretation in that, but we have pretty firm guide rails in some sense, um, and far more than if you're working in um, an kind of English department or places where interpretation is really the kind of core act of the scholarship. And I think that that kind of attention to the empirical gives us a, a really wide vocabulary, as both Etienne and Angela have spoken about, a ways of showing people pasts that are potentially important to understand for the present and important to understand in their own sake. Um, and we also have the real advantage that we marry those empirical understandings of things to narrative. The form in which we uh, present our findings to the world is one that's actually incredibly accessible to a wide variety of people because we tell it in story. Um, part of the way that we make arguments is to assemble them narratively. And I think that that's something that gives the reach of environmental histories within the environmental humanities, um, kind of a, a really broad um, and potentially very exciting audience. Thank you, I'll stop there. Thank you, Great. Bathsheba. So uh, let's just continue mm -hmm. on to uh, Rotsia. Hi everyone. Uh, first of all, thank you uh, for the invitation. Um, I think this is a really good panel and a really good roundtable to have these discussions. Um, well, first of all, um, in this book, in my book here, I focused on the history of Zacatecas. Zacatecas is a silver mining city in Mexico with a storied past. Uh, silver was initially found there in 1546 and mining has been occurring in that region since then. Um, so what I wanted to look at was in the 19th and 20th centuries of how silver mining intersected with uh, water scarcity, but also the political upheaval that Mexico was undergoing during this time with the dictatorship of Porfirio Diaz in the late 19th century and then the Mexican Revolution of 1910. And so I, so in this book, I, um, I used what I call a, a framework called the ecology of extraction that looked at not only uh, the ideas uh, that mining uh, brought to the region, that it was okay to exploit the water, so water sources, that it was okay for people to share those water sources with mining, as well as how mining affected the human body. So that was the framework in, in which I approached this topic. Um, in looking, with regards to your question, um, in looking how uh, environmental humanities scholars who are not historians and what they can take away from this book, um, I've outlined, outlined uh, three themes that can be discussed across disciplinary lines. So the first one kind of to echo Angela's point with regards to time and memory. Um, there is a question of how 
environmental humanity scholars and environmental historians engage with time differently. At least with extraction history, we're looking at not only geologic time, but we're also looking at toxic legacies, which can be over centuries. Um, but with time, in particular with the environmental humanities, it seems to be much more, it can be much more intimate. So in this book, I came across several letters of people who remember natural resources as they were. They would recall personal moments of engaging or you know, walking along a stream or eating fruit trees, eating the fruit off fruit trees, and now they're no longer there. So in these letters, um, they convey their own sense their own sense of time uh, through these natural resources. Um, in addition, so this brings up the question of how people recall the conditions of, of natural resources through their writing, but also not only just looking at physical landscapes, but also emotional landscapes as well. Uh, a second topic that can be uh, taken away from the book is through rhetorical analysis, namely through resistance, adaptation, and negotiation that you see once again in these letters. Mining, of course, is always going to be um, a very hot topic, especially in times of water scarcity, and especially in Latin America in the last 100 years. Um, with and then to my final point, um, I think that there's a lot to do with extraction histories and images and literature. Many of these mining towns were you know, the subjects of uh, travel literature in the late 19th century and early 20th century when technology was something to be marveled at. Postcards were printed of uh, cranes, of mines, of railroad networks. And so I think that's uh, something that environmental humanities scholars can take away, not only in their analysis of the images, but also using those images as uh, sources, primary sources for future analysis as well. And with that, I will stop there. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, let's just go on and Peter. Hey, everyone. Hope everyone is safe and, and uh, reasonably happy. And thanks to Finarna and Dolly for organizing this and for organizing the entire year of Zooming. Because uh, it's important to have a place to, I wouldn't say meet, but at least be able to kind of engage uh, uh, during these hard times. All right, so I, I, I published a book. Tada, looks, it's nice to have one in a physical copy these days uh, about the history of, uh, of science, history of science in Norway, focusing in on history of anthropology, philosophers. This is science in the, in the German sense, Wissenschaft, right? This is anthropologists, philosophers, uh, uh, scientists, ecologists, climatologists, and so on. And what came out of that history, which really starts with, the, with Rachel Carson coming to Norway in 1962 three, and then up to the Rio meeting in 1993, is that Norwegian scientists are very active in setting the uh, uh, the, setting the uh, an agenda, international agenda for environmental debate. Um, the philosophers talking about eco-philosophy, uh, uh, ecology, that kind of a biocentric way of thinking. Uh, the managers were, were, you know, managerial sciences or in the economy, they, they were launching um, uh, to, together with the theologists, actually, which is very kind of interesting. Um, 
sustainability through the Brundtland Commission. So the sustainable development language we, we, we got from them is, is, has that, that bearing. Uh, uh, and then the, the climate scientists came out of acid rain debates in the 70s that sort of uh, was relaunched in the 90s as a, as a, as a way of thinking and managing uh, the climate through the United Nations. So that's sort of what I'm, I'm, uh, I'm doing. Um, how does it link to environmental history and environmental humanities? Uh, and here there's a tension. I think we should flash that out. There's a tension between the history of science, I think, and, and the environmental history on the other, the other side. Because the, the scientists historically are the ones who are determining what, how we describe environments, right? So the ecologist would say we should describe the environment in a certain way, a uh, certain methodology, if you like. And then environmental humanities, environmental historians would then adapt that and use that to understand history. Um, uh, the, if you like, the, the history of science is thus more anthropocentric or focusing on people and how people understood and conceptualized the environment, while environmental historians tend to be more taking those, those insights as a, as a fact, if you like, or as a way of seeing the natural world. Uh, sometimes that's not a, a real tension it's more like how it is and, and it's no big deal uh, uh, sometimes it can actually be a, an issue uh, I think in the way we approach environmental history or environmental humanities in terms of methodology say you have to use a certain biocentric point of view which has come straight out of a, a certain philosophical tradition or you have to adopt uh, uh, an ecological perspective, which also comes out of a certain scientific view and, and certain scientific bias. So, uh, so I think you know there's a tension. I think it's productive tension, by the way. I don't think this is something which is you know destructive. It's a productive tension that we can we can explore and and uh, benefit from from investigating um, as a group. Um, uh, with all books, when they arrive, they're kind of dated uh, because I've already, I already moved on, uh, but not for the reader, maybe, but for me, I, this book I finished like three years ago or something, and now I'm writing a new book, which is uh, I'm just about to finish, uh, which is going to be uh, out, about outdoor life. So I just want to announce that it's coming a new book about outdoor life uh, uh, and how that, uh, how that is possible or not possible. Anyway, that's not history of science. I probably used up my minutes now. Uh, good, healthy vibes to everyone. We need it. Thank you, Pellet. I think a book about outdoor life is very timely. So, <laughs> as spending yeah. so much time indoors. Yeah. All right. So we'll move then to Ben for the last opening statement. Hello, everyone. Thank you also to the uh, conveners. It's nice to see everybody here. Um, I wrote a book. Um, like, like Petter, it feels like I, it came out in 2019, but I feel like I finished it like in 2015 or 2016. So it's, it's it seems so old now. Um, I can also show it. Um, pure adulteration. Um, with the subtitle, Cheating on Nature in the Age of Manufactured Food, which is supposed to be a grand subtitle. Um, my, I'll, I'll follow the pattern here and I'll try to point out some things that um, that others haven't already said because I, I basically agree with, with the prior comments about the, the nature of the environmental humanities. Um, so I'll try to be additive um, and less repetitive. But uh, my motivation in this book uh, was, well, one of the motivations that I think might be most relevant here is to try to understand what I found the, as a historical consistency, a continuity um, 
in um, arguments about food between um, what's acceptable and what's unacceptable, which sometimes is labeled as what's good and what's bad. Sometimes it's labeled as what's natural and what's artificial. And in the time period I was studying in the later 1800s, it was a particularly fraught moment uh, when the key terms were what was pure and what was adulterated. Um, but I saw those terms uh, on an axis that the words change. So maybe consistent with uh, Etienne's project of how um, you know people reconceive of, of the environment over time. Um, the concepts seem to be quite similar. And so uh, that is the topical or the conceptual motivation for it. Um, this book covers, uh, you know, 1860s to 1910s, more or less. And um, if that motivation was to, to try to understand something of a historical continuity, then the point was for readers to get a sense that we're part of the same um, historical momentum or this, this same history, we're not outside it. Um, and that's, that's the tension that I, I often try to deal with is on the one hand, I'll do a one hand, other hand thing here. On the one hand, it's that we're members of these longer historical narratives. We're not outside them, we're part of them. And then on the other hand, there are unique features to the world and the context that we live in now. So we have to dabble or, or manage both of those at the same time. Um, <clears throat> I didn't say this in the book, but uh, I thought a lot about it and written about it elsewhere that um, that point is something that I think uh, for me bridges over to what I think the environmental humanities can do. And, and partly it's about an idea of history where it's not, I mean, I don't see history as one damn thing after another. I know that's the vernacular sense, but it's, it's one damn thing on top of another. It's layers. Um, so these layers still live underneath us and we're building, we're building systems on top of past systems. So it's not like something that preceded us and now we're beyond it. It's something that's underneath us. Um, all, you know, that's the palimpsest metaphor where we're writing into these grooves historically that we try to etch out, but then we rewrite on top of the same parchment. You find that you, you tend to follow patterns that were built before. Um, and I, I think that's a valuable, uh, I mean, let me rephrase that. I, I'll, I'll end up talking about this in, in class a lot, and I'm not always teaching, actually, I'm very rarely teaching um, history students. It's uh, largely um, interdisciplinary mix. It's it's humanities students, it's engineers, it's scientists. And um, I think of those discussions of these topics as broadly um, humanities ones. I think that they're all questions about what it, what it means to be to be human. Like how, how do we understand our, our lives in a culture and a world? Um, in a, so that's to my last point here too, I guess I will be a little repetitive. Um, partly some of the things that uh, Bathsheba said. I think the other element of uh, writing these works is um, in connection with the environmental hum humanities by uh, our participation in generating text and the written word and, and literary, it's, it's literature. Like, yes, they're historical works and they're based on empirical evidence, but they're narratives of a sort, they're stories. And that notion of, of literary contribution or thinking of ourselves as writing literature is um, in league with, or at least uh, puts us inside the environmental humanities so that that's the bigger category and history is the smaller category in that sense. So I'll, I'll stop there. Thanks everybody. I mean, I think that um, there were such good points that were made, um, a couple of things to point out that were across these comments as I heard them. Um, and one, I think really comes from this um, 
our present moment and then needing to look backwards, <clears throat> needing to look into the layers, needing to understand um, that why we are the way we are has roots um, in it um, and that we can't understand the present <clears throat> environmental problems and uh, crises without uh, those histories. Um, and that we do that then based on very specific empirical data, right? So it's, it's not just interpreting it um, because we want it to be interpreted in a particular way, but instead we go to, to specific data hard data and, um, and, and, you know, sources to say, well, this is how people thought, whether that's the same or different, right? So that came out in a number of comments that there's both kind of continuity um, and change, right? So basic uh, history principles um, at work and that, um, that there's diversity and difference over time. Um, you know, from Etienne's first uh, comment. So that, that those things actually matter tremendously as historians. And I think that one of the things I noticed being, you know, an editor for the journal Environmental Humanities, because like Bathsheba, right, you, you said you haven't been in the field or you haven't thought of yourself as environmental humanities and that it's, you know, maybe the last couple of years you kind of got familiar with it. Well, me too. And I'm the editor of the journal Environmental Humanities, right? Because in fact, it's a very new field. It's a very new constellation of even trying to envision that we do something bigger than um, just being, you know, historians of a particular kind. Um, and and in that, I mean, I I do see that many of the other fields often try and start from the present and, and find data to talk about the present. But what the, what the historians do is, is say, but it all is in layers. It's, it's in, and that all matters to how we understand what's going on right now. Um, and that empirical push to do that is, I think a very, uh, a, a good move that the environmental humanities needs to make. And it's interesting since I and my co-editor um, Franklin Jen. So he's a geographer, a cultural geographer, who also is very much into that kind of empirical uh, work. Um, and, and so I, I think that there's kind of, well, we'll see um, a real focus on, on having that kind of data uh, and, and thinking more than just right this very second, right? That things are situated in time as well as in space. Yes. No, I think we just should just open up then for uh, first, if any of you panelists have any brief comments mm -hmm. for the, the others and the conversation that's emerging here now, mm -hmm. uh, and then we can open up also for the, the audience. But anybody wants to go, they can just unmute mm -hmm. themselves. Mm -hmm. And if the, the um, audience members, if you'd like to write in your questions into chat, um, we will ask them uh, for you. If you have some particular thing you'd like us to pick up on. I would like oh. to say something to, to Rocio, if that's okay, um, because I, I really enjoyed reading your book. And I think what you say about time is, is crucial 
Um, and one way we're destroying you know, Earth in a very short time scale. And the other, I need to understand that we need that deep time scale. Now, writing in deep time for 10,000 years is hard to do in the humanities and as a historian because you, it's not accepted scholarly to write a deep history that is shallow, right? Um, uh, because it covers too long of a time. Um, and there, there, there's a tension uh, in what is accepted in journals, uh, to you, Dolly, uh, or to, and not, not criticizing, but just saying there's a tension how to write an article that covers 5,000 years uh, of environmental history or time period uh, without being, you know, superficial. Um, so I just want to point that out and appreciate your book and appreciate your comment and, and your insight in how to think through that. So thank you. Yeah, thank you for your comment. Um, that's something that I'm wrestling with um, at the moment as I look forward to new projects and, and how to incorporate memory into that as aspect of time. So I can kick it over to Angela since she brought up also time and memory as well. Well, thank you. Um, actually, that, that very question um, is something I'm also now grappling with because um, my newest project I'm collaborating with archaeologists and uh, zoologists um, so having conversations and trying to bring a deep time perspective together with a historical perspective is something that we're trying to do whether we'll manage it or not is another question but uh, yeah it's it's um I think I naively initially assumed that it would be easy but it's not and uh, it's really interesting working out those bumps in that collaboration. Um, also in terms of memory, one of the things I'm really intrigued with with memory is not just what's remembered, but what's remembered is often stories, but also forgetting. Um, so something that, that I've seen, um, so particularly studying a, a long, long running controversy is that there are cycles of forgetting. So the same debate will be had two or three times or has been over the last 50 years. Um, the same solution might be posited two or three times. And there are times when that solution will fail and other times where it, it might succeed and understanding that. Um, and I don't think I really got to a good answer as to why there is forgetting, but I think that forgetting is sometimes very political and it's to do with the nature of institutions. And um, so when we're thinking about memory, thinking about forgetting as well, I think is, is really, really super important. Um, and I just realized because of my initial bit, I forgot to do the book wavy thing. I'll do the book wavy thing. Oh no, except for my screen blur is not helping me. So I'll give up on that, Never mind. Um, Does someone else want to uh, make a comment there about memory in your in your particular case or you know the ways in which we remember or forget i mean it's it's funny because you do see these same kind of issues come up over and over again there was recently uh, uh some kind of big thing in canada about margarine or butter was it butter and i and i immediately thought of of Ben's book and, and the 
because they were talking about this kind of adulteration of of butter and it's like oh if we're having the same conversation again you know so let's let's color our margarine pink um you know just goes in circles um i think I one know. of the other uh, for me big comments that a number of you touched upon um you know, particularly Bathsheba, when you were talking about, you know, it's not just data, but it's about narrative and it's about telling stories and making those stories then accessible um, because we, yeah, because we're storytelling creatures, uh, humans, um, and we tell each other stories in this way of that's how we remember, right? As, as Angie said, it's how you don't forget. Basically, you, you, you give a story, you give a narrative. Um, and that being in that business is something special, I think, as a historian, um, because it is quite a different way of writing than many of the other fields. I mean, anthropologists often tell embedded stories, um, but if I look at, you know, say a literature scholar, they're not going to take you through the whole novel. I mean, that, that's not what they're doing, right? That's That's not their mode of, of presenting. Um, whereas in some essence, you know, Bathsheba, the, the comment you made about, you know, you, your construction of the story, your construction of the narrative as a historian is your analytical power. Um, so I was wondering if anybody had any comments about storytelling then um, that you kind of thought about in terms of environmental humanities and historians. And if not, that's okay. Ben, go. Just a, a small comment because, um, as we were finishing up the last uh, that that last question, it was um, the the political value of ignorance or the political value of of denying historical precedent or you know people don't remember things a week ago and we're trying to get we're we're trying to have this this argument about what happened a century ago and it's not so much so that you the way I phrase that is wrong. It's not that we want people to just to know the facts of like 1918 or 1890 or whatever margarine thing. Um, so that the way around this, or I hope the way around it is to work on better narrative contributions, better storytelling. So it led into what my thought from before led into your comment that those things are, are connected, that it's not just, um, it's not just about the facts it includes facts like it's pure empirically true and valid, but that you construct the narrative based on the empirical evidence that you find, as opposed to just distributing a list or a litany of empirical evidence, which is not compelling. It doesn't stick with people. It's hard, and it's hard to remember. You want to stick on the memory point. I think one other thing that the, the kind of narrative capacities of history can do, um, which gets to um, Chris Slaby's point in the in the chat or his question is that there is space, particularly in something as long as a monograph, to indicate how contested and ambiguous the status of the knowledge itself can be, um, and that you can actually put more than one set of um, assertions about what is true and what happened um, and what underlies the the processes um, and what um, even counts as truth next to each other um, and kind of trust that readers are actually interested in and able to engage with that ambiguity 
um, rather than a, some other disciplines, I think where um, there's more emphasis on the researcher kind of claiming a particular space um, and asserting that they have the, the final word on the truth. Um, and to me, that's actually one of the, the more, um, that, that kind of uh, capacity to, to tell stories that show the degree to which they're polyvocal and multifaceted is one of the things that is really um, useful within our discipline. I could, yeah, just build on uh, that. Um, I was thinking about Peter's um, pointing out this tension between the history of science and environmental history. And I, I think it's a tension that I've often thought, thought about and struggled with. And I think there are actually some, some developments in the way we tell histories of knowledge that, that may actually help to ease some of that tension. And, and one of them is just, and I think, Bastardville, you do this in your book in a really wonderful way which is precisely what you've said, which is to attend to the diversity of knowledge traditions that make new truth claims about environments, right? Or about human relations to the non-human. And that allows us to you know, tell, tell histories in which we're not just relying on one kind of authoritative Western scientific account of the world, but we can actually bring different accounts kind of into dialogue. Um, and so for me, that seems like a really promising development. Not that it undoes that tension between claims about the real and the interpretation, you know, but it, it gives us a kind of broader playing field and, and maybe more points of triangulation. Um, and then I wanted to say one other thing, which was also about tensions, I guess, which is, and, and about narrative, which is, you know, I think, I think one of the tension, another of the tensions in historical scholarship is, is between evidence and narrative. You know, one of the things that, that I often struggle with in my own work is that there's a story that I'd like to tell but I don't have the evidence for it, right? And then you have to make a decision. What do you want to do? You can speculate, you can tell a different story, you can try to find a different archive, right? There's all this work that we do, but I think sometimes we just have to confront the fact that the historical record doesn't have all the evidence that we want to tell the story we want. Um, and I think that's an important, you know, um, I don't even know if it's a skill or, a, a, or something, but it's a, a sensibility or an awareness maybe that I think that historians can contribute to that broader conversation, which is how do we deal with incomplete knowledge right, of a particular kind, even when we want to tell these powerful narratives. That's a very good point, um, Etienne. So, so one of the things I wanted to, to ask you about, I mean, Bathsheba already said for herself that she did not even considered environmental humanities as part of the framework for working on this book then. But were any of you inspired, influenced by larger debates going on within environmental humanities or methodological approaches, uh, theoretical approaches in, in working on your book? I mean, if not, it's also interesting, I think. Mm -hmm. And why is that? Mm -hmm. I was very inspired, but you know, uh, very inspired, uh, especially between the distinction which has been brought up again and again about biocentric versus anthropocentric, uh, or the idea that humans shouldn't be in the center of a story, uh, maybe environment should be, maybe the odor should be, wonderful work, Dolly. Um, and, and I found as a uh, uh, as Atin uh, says, that you we are drawn back to some sort of anthropocentrism. Um, we're drawn back to the human story. 
uh, it's kind of hard to telling a non-human story, even though it'd be good attempts. Uh, and but the but the new version of anthropocentrism in environmental humanities is different. Uh, it's a more nuanced and balanced and and thoughtful, I hope. Uh, uh, methodology, uh, which has emerged just looking back 20 years, it was much harsher, uh, the climate of methodologies in environmental history, at least, much more agenda driven, uh, I think. I mean, I guess the follow up question to that, though, is even if it didn't inspire you in this last book, is there anything that's inspiring you now, right? Because as you several people pointed out, well, this book feels old to me because I actually finished it five years ago and it's only out now. But so I guess the, the question would be, is there is there something you're drawing on now or something you've read or or somebody's work who you think, oh yeah, that that's the kind of thing. I mean, because I just thought of, you know, for example, with Rossio's comments about, um, you know, time thinking with somebody like, you know, Rob Nixon and slow violence, right? So is, is are there things like that that are seeping into the way you think um, from these kind of other places than what historians do? Yeah, I was gonna, that was perfectly placed comment, Dolly. Uh, when you asked that question, I, I was thinking locally and academically where our environmental studies program is about 10 years old at our college. And it was started mainly by geologists and, and biologists and, and scientists. And it really felt like the curriculum was very much based uh, around the sciences. And then it was reaching out to non-sciences, but it was science centric. And it took us um, about eight years to get approval to hire an environmental humanist so that we could like double the capacity from having one faculty member to two. Um, and that was a world changer for our students and for how we talked about environmental health, environmental progress, um, environmental identity, because it immediately brought in different methods. And the, it was a Rob Nixon student is one we hired. And so we talked a lot about slow violence um, in our time here. Um, and it made it so much more possible to make questions of environmental justice and um, uh, you know, wider voices or wider views of indigenous knowledge or other knowledge systems central to the discussions that we had in ways that didn't happen before. So that might not be a specific reference like to my work, but I feel like now I'm thinking about those things so much more because we think about it so much more on campus because we explicitly needed and wanted to add in an environmental humanist who would bring these points up at every meeting and every class, you know, throughout campus. I would say maybe um, Dolly and Anthony, to your question, not maybe not an answer, but in just kind of meditating on your question, I have a, a little bit of a hard time answering it because I, when I look back over my own influences, I think environmental history and environmental humanities get blurred together with a lot of other things, and it's hard to pick them out. You know, but one thing I would say is that I think that's been really inspiring to me from the broader world of environmental humanities, from literary and philosophical and anthropological kind of wings of the environmental humanities is. Um, not just new ways of writing about the non-human, but new ways of understanding the human as being cons constituted by relations to the non-human. Because I think there is a, a stage of, you know, in, the his in environmental history uh, as, a, as a field where um, there's a lot of attention to human interactions with nature, right? But, but it's you know, still committed to a very strong distinction between the two. Um, but now I think, you know, we, we have so many rich studies also of contemporary ways in which 
you know, people's understandings of who they are as individuals or as human beings or communities are so profoundly shaped by their material relations to and, and non-material relations to, to, the, to non-human entities of various kinds that it just makes it really clear that you can't, you can't tell that story of humans relating to nature, right? As if either of those terms are refixed. And of course, I think there's reading of the environmental history literature that also teaches that same lesson. Um, but for me, the, the way that it's been articulated in some of these other fields is just very powerful. Um, and, you know, kind of makes me kind of rethink some of my own methods. I'm not sure it shows up in, in the book that, <laughs> that I was talking about earlier, uh, but it's certainly shaping my thinking now. I mean, I think that's something also you see if we, you know, we think about how environmental history books have evolved. I mean, kind of stereotyping, but if you think back to the, you know, 80s, 90s books where you start the introduction or maybe even a prologue with, you know, the land, you know, the, the glacier retreats from the valley and, you know, the vegetation comes up. So you introduce the land, you set the scene, and then you go start talking about the people and their relations with nature. But I think you see more and more how this, this in a way, the agency and the presence throughout the book is much more distributed evenly rather than, you know, you front load nature and then you go back to the people. Um, I mean, people do it, you know, there's certainly uh, older books that do this combination well too, but I think th there's this trend I can see. And I, yeah. I agree with you, Etienne, there's, um... A certain way of talking about um, the non-humans that that is infusing the way I think about um, those relationships. So, I mean, just entire concepts like you know multi-species relations, um, more than human relations. I mean, all of the that kind of language, that kind of way of talking about it, doesn't come from environmental history. Right. It, com it comes from people who are in some other environmental humanities um, fields. Um, and yet I see that those are the kind of words now as I as I work on extinction uh, things I use when I conceptualize the relations that I didn't used to use. Um, so so there is a, a mental shift to there. And Anna Svensson had yeah, a comment. Yeah, so you can pick up this. I mean, it's a long question, but it comes down to, to continue this discussion of, of narrative and storytelling, uh, but then in particular in relation with uh, pedagogy. So I mean, Anna's comment and many others, I think also her saying the same thing, how environmental humanities, some like directions there can become quite inaccessible uh, when it comes to, I would say, theoretical framework often, uh, but can also be other things. So And the language, the language that's used yeah. then, so, the type of jargon or words yeah. that are used. So this is perhaps somewhere environmental history also can contribute, as we talked about earlier. Um, so, um, and, and she refers to Tom Griffiths emphasizing at a workshop on you know, how can you tell compelling stories and not just accurate ones? Because again, it has to do with impact, I think. Mm -hmm. So then with the, how these compelling stories can open the door for emotional connection, etc. cetera, uh, do you have any experience in using narratives in teaching um, that could be useful? Mm -hmm. Yes, Angie? <clears throat> it, that's really convenient because I was... Uh, um, one of the things I was I was going to draw out, actually, again, thinking about the classroom, is that um, 
So I teach a course which is not quite environmental humanities. It's kind of partly policy and partly media and there's history in it. But one of the very early sessions that I do is, is explicitly about stories and fictions and art. Um, so I talk about histories and um, deep time and the past and the future, and then we immediately go to stories. Um, <clears throat> partly because of then getting students and, and myself also to think about futures and futures multiple. And so looking at not just stories as in narrative, but stories as in explicit stories, fictions, um, and how those can be really, really helpful to help then reflect on our own current situation. And um, in that class, actually, we spend quite a lot of time actually looking at films um, and picking out kind of environmental themes in films, you know, uh, down to sort of things like Avengers and looking at um, uh, Annihilation. So all sorts of stuff. And I also ask the students to bring in the stories that have grabbed them. And so the course kind of evolves um, partly through that and through thinking explicitly about fiction and stories and how powerful that is to then kind of, yeah, engage with um, the complexity of what's going on in terms of environmental debates, but also why people care so much and why people care so much in different ways. So, so yeah, I, th I think stories as in the narratives we tell as historians, but also thinking about the history of explicit fictional stories and how those fictions have power within those debates. And, you know, in, in the, the Badger Cunning debate, Wind in the Willows is kind of the iconic thing for that. But I think the point holds much more broadly and it's something that's really brought out in my classroom the last few years. I hope somebody wants to pick that up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> have I just stunned everyone into science? I, I would actually be really interested whether whether it's just me being a geek about science fiction or whether this is something that that others find useful to think about explicit stories and story writing in fiction. I mean, in a way, I guess it's also picking up on something that Sarah commented here on, you know, developing specific competence or capacities to tailor the discourse for different audiences. Uh, so I think in a way the student setting is a very particular one where it can be very fruitful to do, uh, to do that kind of targeting, you know, to go through science fiction and other themes in order mm -hmm. to uh, tell better histories too. Yeah, I mean, at least for myself, I've, I've enjoyed looking at, um, at science fiction precisely for that reason, because I think it tells us a lot about how we envisioned the future in the past and how we envision the future now in the present. Um, and, and, you know, using that kind of literature is actually quite useful as a historian. Um, and when I have done that myself and looked at literature, I'm not doing it as a literature scholar, right? So, so I, I'm always conscious of that, that I am looking at this literature as a historian. I want, I want to situate this literature as, a, as an evidence of the past, but as evidence that then speaks to somebody envisioning um, a different world. 
right? It most of the time, at least the ones I'm interested in, are some kind of envisionment of a different world, a different past, a different present, or a different future than the one that they have. So Rocio, did you have something there on teaching? Oh, no, just going back to your previous comment regarding our influences, um, but kind of tying into teaching as well, um, in that I think environmental historians have um, a great opportunity to engage with literature and environmental topics in, in, in literature itself, whether that be, you know, like novels of the Mexican Revolution or uh, any regional specific literature as well. Um, I think there's a great source there to build up the cultural history of the environment as well. Yeah. Um, but I think also assigning novels in, in environmental history classes would be great as well. Yeah, and, and you had brought up also not only that, but art, right? So, so you know that that art as a, as source has a lot to say and can, in fact, well, they say right, a picture in a thousand words. Um, you know that that it can be a very strong um, way to communicate um, with all different kinds of audience. Yay for yeah. art, Chris yeah. says. <laughs> I can give an, uh, give an example of this. I, uh, I read, is it three years ago, a, a power story, the overstory. And I read the, the novel, super powerful novel um, in environmental humanities, clearly, uh, in which the trees are the ones driving the agency of the, of the story. Uh, uh, and it's been with me since, different ways, uh, when I conceptualize more proper history the way I do it, right? So I think novels, uh, Angela, uh, and fiction is really important for the way we uh, frame, at least I frame and think about the natural world. Uh, and uh, is a very important contribution to environmental humanities. And I think people who write fiction should also be included in environmental humanities as, as proper scholars or whatever the word, uh, uh, word is. Completely agreed, Elliot. So we do unfortunately need to wrap up. We have spent our hour now, which is the time we, we set off. So uh, I just want to thank you all for, uh, for joining the panel and, and sharing your experience and uh, mm -hmm. reflections with us. And also thanks to the, the audience who came. And I mean, thank you all for writing such wonderful environmental history books. Yes. Um, because, and for having shared those with us in this series. Um, because uh, we're, you know, the series has people from all different uh, stripes and, and backgrounds, but as environmental historians ourselves, of course, um, we always have a special place um, for these kind of uh, storytelling um, that we're talking about through these histories. So we really appreciate you taking uh, the time to, to write them, um, to research them, write them, and to share them with us. So thank you. Yeah. And thanks to you both for organizing everything. Yeah, no, I, I wanted to say, I mean, Peter said it already, but to say again, just running this series has just been fantastic. It's just so great to have this space um, to talk across all our fields and different country in this year where none of us can go anywhere. So thank you guys. Yeah. Absolutely.